So, going back to our topic today, we are in the book of uh, the Gospel of Mark. So, if you have a Bible, please open it with me this, uh, this afternoon at chapter 1. And we continue our journey through the first uh, chapter. I don't know how far we can go tonight, but let me, let me read to you. We left it off in, uh, in, chap- in chapter 1, verse 6. Actually, we kind of talked about it a little bit, but um, until verse 5, but let me walk you through the next verses. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan, immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. I don't know if you remember, I told you that when, when Mark wrote, and he used the word evangelion, or the gospel, the word that is translated the gospel or good news for us, he meant something different than what we mean right now. Do you remember where we... I said that that term is is, uh, taken from, what did that mean, and who was it connected with? With Caesar, and what was it connected with? When it was something connected with him when it was his birthday, or maybe there was a victory, and the kings were coming back to town, Caesar was coming back from the war, they say, hey, this is joy, we have good tidings, we have tidings of joy, we have the evangelion, the good news, the king is coming. He's coming back into town, so rejoice. And Mark takes this, and the same with Paul, and Paul most likely was the one who, among the first one, who uses this term. And again, it's not something that they came up with. It was actually 200 years before, when then translated in Greek, the Old Testament from Hebrew, they use, use the same word in Isaiah when it says, hey, these are the good tidings of the servant of God. And he came as a king. And we talked about, behold, our king. He's coming. But it's interesting. He was coming a little bit different than these guys were thinking about. And in the Old Testament, they were thinking that the Messiah will come on a riding horse and coming like all other kings in those times. And he will come into town to just bring victory and defeat to all his enemies. And Jesus did not come like this. And I loved how the Lord put on, on Paul's heart to talk about Philippians 2, because it came in a different way than they were expecting. And nevertheless, though, but, or in the same time, nevertheless, it, it's, it's the same picture of the coming of any king. Because the same way as the king would come and send his ambassadors to prepare the way, the same thing has happened with Jesus. He came or sent the prophet to come and prepare the way. And that was John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was known for his power. He looked a little bit interesting, but he didn't look interesting because he wanted so to to be quirky. He wanted to draw attention. He wanted to kind of uh, make a statement. He actually looked quirky and interesting because he wanted to relate more and connect people's mindset to Elijah, the Old Testament, the prophets. And it's interesting, this picture that he's coming from the wilderness, from the dry places, from the place that are always associated with darkness, with Satan. And he says, from there, from those dry places, God sends his messenger to prepare the way for the king. 
And John the Baptist starts preaching, and he's preaching, and he's saying, hey, you need to repent. You need to change your ways. You need to be different. And it's interesting, again, we don't have time to go in Matthew 3 to see what, what he actually was saying. And there were soldiers coming to him. It was like, what do you mean, uh, John? What do we need to do? And he says, hey, you used to, to be corrupt. You used to steal from people. Don't do that anymore. Be just. The Pharisees, hey, change your ways. Don't do this things anymore. Be real. Don't be hypocritical. So there were specific ways in which you could have changed. But I love what, uh, what John tells us here next. He says, nevertheless, he says, there's someone coming who is mightier than I, and I am not to fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What do you think it means? What I think Paul, uh, John is, is saying here is that he realizes that this baptism that he was doing was just something external. He was convicting people of something that uh, was externally emotional or just moved from an outside perspective. But he realized, based on the Old Testament prophecies as well, and the Old Testament covenant or New Covenant Old Testament, he realized that there's need, a need, a deep need for an internal transformation, a total overhaul of the heart. And that cannot happen, you guys, cannot happen with external change. And that's what I find, I don't know in your church, but I find in many churches, both here and in Romania and other places, this is the human nature, by the way, we want to change the externals, thinking that we're going to change the internal. It doesn't work like that. The only one who can change your heart and your life totally is the Holy Spirit. That's the only thing that can transform your heart and life. And I see many people who come and teach, you know, hey, you need to be, don't be like this and don't be like that. And reality is, yeah, we need to have the law. That's why we have the law. Don't, don't commit adultery. Don't lust. But let me ask you, how is that working for you? How is that working for you to keep the law? Have, have you tried that to, to kind of be good at keeping the law? Some of you might have done. I know I did at times, but it goes pretty uh, sideways, doesn't it? You try to keep the law and you think you're doing well until something happens. Like, that's the same thing that happened, for example, with the Pharisees. They were, they were doing pretty well. They thought in their minds that they're actually keeping the law. And I love what Jesus does. Jesus comes to them and says, hey, you think you are, um, you know, not kill people and you're keeping the law? I'm telling you that even when you say fool to your brother, be angered in your brother, depends on your translation, you are actually committing murder. Oh, you're thinking, uh, oh, I'm not committing adultery because I'm not physically actually in adultery. I'm telling you the law actually is not here. The Ten Commandments are, maybe you can keep them, but the, the principle of the law, what God had in mind, is that when you look at the woman... And you lust with her in your, in your heart. That's actually committing adultery. And the same goes with man. So what he's saying is that the, the law is meant to point to you the character of God. How God's holiness and justice is different than ours. But it's also meant to be a guide to Christ. And to show us how limited we are. How sinful we are. How much we need a change of heart. And here's, here's the kick. In the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, and by the way, if you think you got it all together, let me tell you a little uh, surprise for you. You need to be perfect because my Father in Heaven is perfect. So go ahead, work for it. 
Have you ever thought in your minds and hearts, maybe you've been struggling with sin in your heart, and you're thinking, man, I'm going to just do better. I'm going to pull my bootstraps. I'm going to just do better. I found a method. I know how I'm going to fight sin. And you're going on your own flesh. You're trying to, to fight sin. I'm not saying you should not fight sin, but don't fight sin in your own strength. Fight sin from an inward, being dependent totally on the Holy Spirit. That's my point, is that you can, you can always change the, the outside, but you cannot ever, ever change the inside. The inside has to, be, has to be changed by God. You need the Holy Spirit. By the way, that's exactly what happens in John 3. In John 3, Jesus has an encounter with a guy called Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes to the Lord, and he actually realizes, I think, he gets it, that there's no way he can be right with God. And he comes to God, and he, to Jesus, and he says, uh, hey, how are you doing? You're a good teacher. All this blah, 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 you know, courtesy things, and uh, wanted to be nice, superfluous. And Jesus goes straight to the heart and says, hey, by the way, Nicodemus, I know why you're here, pretty much. You cannot get to the kingdom of God unless you're born again. You know all the things you've been doing, Nicodemus, with going to the church, singing in front of the choir, in the church, in choir, going missions, and KKM, whatever that is, uh, doing whatever you want to do. That's great stuff, man. Good things. But that's not going to take you into the kingdom of God. Oh, you, but the Lord, Lord, you don't know. I, I don't smoke. I don't sleep around. I don't do certain things. I've been keeping the law. In your heart of hearts, you know, it doesn't really make you right with God. You know why? Because you're still imperfect. And you need to be perfect. God's, God is perfect. If you, if you think you're gonna, He's going to let you in, in His heaven with your imperfections, you are totally wrong. So then how in the world will you get to heaven then? Because that was the, the conundrum of the disciples. They're like, man, how are we going to go there, Lord? <laughs> if if you, your demands are so great. And He says later on, what is impossible with humans, with us, with you, with men, is not, it's possible with God. What do you mean by that? Again, I think it's John 3. The born again. You need to be born again. And Nicodemus says the same maybe reaction I see in your face. What in the world are you saying, man? How is that possible? And Jesus goes into explaining them. What does he say? What does Jesus say to Nicodemus? You remember? What does it mean to be born again? Because he explains to him. You have to be born out of what? What was it? Someone who knows John 3. Water and spirit. Water and spirit. And there are people kind of coming with different uh, interpretations of that. And, and there's a group of people, majority of people, uh, in this minority, because I think there is a majority that has the right interpretation, but there's a, a, a group of people that say, hey, that means he needs to be baptized, and he needs to have the Spirit of God. That cannot be right, can it be? Why? That means that you need to do some works for your salvation, baptism, and you need to receive the Spirit. That's not how it works. Some people say, no, there's an even more minority says, no, it means you need to be naturally born, like through the amniotic fluid, that's the water, and from spiritual birth. That doesn't really make sense, does it? It's just even gross to think like that. <laughs> I think the key to interpret that verse, it actually goes into the next verse. When Jesus says, Nicodemus says the same thing, like, what does he mean, man? Like, what in the world? You're leaving me kind of in an ambiguous mode, Jesus. And Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, hey, you're the teacher of Israel, and you don't know these things? What does that imply? That 
actually, there's an answer to his question, where should he find it? What do you think? Because he's a teacher of Israel, he knew most likely what? The Old Testament. He knew what the law of God says. So, so the answer to his situation, to, his, to this situation, is actually in the Old Testament. And I think, especially because in, in Greek, the way this works, water and spirit, actually it's a, it's a, it's a combination that cannot be taken separately. It has to be taken together. And most likely, where you have this, it's in Ezekiel 36, verses 24 to 27. That's where you have the new covenant in the Old Testament, by the way. I don't know if you, you heard of that new covenant. It's not only in the New Testament. All the, the new covenant is actually in the Old Testament. Listen to Ezekiel 36. And it's actually very revealing. And I think it's very neat to, to look at, at what he's saying here. Listen to verse 24 in 26. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then, listen, I will sprinkle, you, sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Did you hear that? Cleanse you and with my spirit in you. And that's the same thing actually Paul talks about in Titus, where he says, the Lord has cleansed us from our sins and put his spirit in us. Do you see what John was doing there or Jesus was doing there? He's saying in repentance, or when you have the moment of transformation, there is a cleansing of your sins where you're declared, and Darius, I think, did the workshop on justification. You are declared justified. Just as if you never sinned. You are declared just as if you've never sinned. Why? Because of Jesus. He became sin for us who knew no sin so that we become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 So there's the moment of forgiveness. Now think about that for a second. Forgiveness doesn't come cheap. Forgiveness comes at a cost, guys. You know... The cost for your sin and my sin? The life of the living God. You might think, man, I'm not so bad. Why would God die for me? Let, me? let me walk you through something. How many lies do you have to say to be a liar? Has anyone lied here before? Okay. How many times you have to, to take God's name in vain to be a blasphemer? One time. Has anyone take the, name, the Lord's name in vain? Anyone who didn't? Maybe you should raise your hand. It would be interesting. And you might do it just right now. You might take the Lord's name in vain when you do that. How do you call someone who's lusting after someone that is not their spouse, an adulterer. Anyone did that? So here I am talking to a bunch of liars, blasphemers, and adulterers. And you know what's the penalty for one sin? Not sins. What's the penalty for one sin? Death. Come on, God. That's, that's a little bit cruel here. Like, one sin, death. Really? I just 
you know, lied a little bit, that's white lies, or just lasted a little bit because I'm young. Yeah, God is perfect, guys. Imagine this huge, just think about it with me for a second. Imagine this huge wall behind me, huge, as far as you can see, as high as the heavens, just huge white wall, meaning purity. And that represents God. Imagine that this retro, uh, has this uh, radioactive thing into it, and, and anything that comes close to it that has even the slightest imperfection, it's going to be rejected and destroyed from its presence. Think about that image. That one little sin of yours is going to be a mean destruction. Why? Because God is perfect. And He's just. He cannot just look away. He has to punish your sin. Now let's say for a second that you've done three sins a day. Oh, let's do it this way. Three sins a week. You might be someone who lives on some kind of mountains and you don't just three sins three times a week. No, multiply that by a year. How much is that? 52 weeks? Three? Your math? How does it? 156. Okay. Multiply that. How many, how, how many of you are more than 10 years old here? Or, yeah, most of you. Yes. Okay. Multiply that with the years you have in your life. Some are 15, some are 30. I have a bunch. I mean, mine is without number. Others here in the room, we have more than that. As, as you grow older, you realize, man, I, I gathered a lot of them. Do you know how many times we deserve to die? So many times we have sinned. Why? Because God is just. And God says, I send my son, the king. Guys, he doesn't just, he just doesn't send anyone. He could have sent anyone among these angels, couldn't he? In a sense, he could. But he sends the king. He sends his son, his only begotten son, God in person. He comes down on this earth for you and me. Do you realize how bad you are? We're so bad that the son of God had to die for our sins. Isn't that crazy? Aren't we all that about that all day long? We're trying to prove to people we're not so bad? At home, with our siblings, with our friends. Man, I'm bad, but I'm not like that one. But the reality is we are so sinful. We deserve so much death that the only Son of God had to come and die for us, for our sins. And there's a song, he says, it's amazing, on the cross I have my worth, my worthiness, and my worth. Here's the good news. I am so loved by God. When you feel down into your, in the pit and you're like, man, I, I just, I'm good of nothing. I'm a worm. Here's the good news for you. There is the good news of Jesus Christ who left heaven. He loved you so much. He didn't just die for you, but he gave you life, his life. He didn't just forgive you of your sins. He doesn't just treat you as if you never sinned. He gives you his righteousness. He lived a perfect life. That's why he lived for this long in this earth. He could have just gone directly from, from uh, the barn to the cross. Or just come in person and live for a week and go to the cross. But he wanted to live a perfect life for our sake. He wanted to live that righteousness that we can never live. That's what he did. He lived our life, our, the lives we should have lived. And then on that cross, he took our sins on his shoulders so that when we put our trust in him, his righteousness becomes ours. That's amazing. 
It's like you have a, you, you are, you know, I don't know some of you, but when I was in, in college, I was bankrupt. I was, you know, poor student. I was just going from one day to another. What? There's no bank account. There's nothing on my thing. I'm always on zero or if I have any plus, it was in my pocket. And it didn't last long. But when I got married, my wife has some savings and she had the car. Guess what? The next day after I became on my, on, I became married, I, only, I not only got a wedding ring, but I got a bank account and some money and some car. I married up. All of a sudden, everything she worked hard for became mine. That's exactly what happens in Christianity. Everything that Jesus has worked hard for to do, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, God's Spirit comes into you and His righteousness becomes yours. And He gives you the power, the Bible says, it doesn't just transform your heart, it gives you the power to win victories over sin. And I love what happens next, you guys. I, I love what happens next. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Why was he baptized? Was Jesus a sinful person? No. In Matthew 3, he says, he did that because he wanted to do everything according to righteousness. He wanted to, to make sure that he does everything as an example for us. And in the moment of baptism, even John says, hey, I don't... What were you doing here? I need to be baptized by you. And John, Jesus says to John, no, we need to do everything according to righteousness. And you know what, what happens next? What's going on next? The heavens open and you hear the voice of God. And, and I love this part because I think until now we talked about the coming of the king. And the, the preeminence of the king here John is talking about. Now we have the coronation of the king. That's exactly what happens. The, the God the Father, you remember in those movies where the, the, you know, the, the king comes over the knights or over his, the, the one who's taking over his uh, kingdom and he, he, he crowns him as, as king. That's exactly what happens here. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Everyone is just amazed of this. And then in the next moment, you hear the, the, something like the Holy Spirit. By the way, it, it's not a dove. If you have in your Bible a dove thing, the Holy Spirit is not a dove. I hope you know that. It's something like a dove, meaning gentle, comes down on him. And wants to point out that the entire Trinity is present there. And Jesus doesn't just say that he has the power to give it the Holy Spirit. God from heaven authorizes him and empowers him to do such, to give you the Holy Spirit. I love that. And if you for a second you're like, man, so... Uh, does he, can he really do this? I loved what happens then. Immediately the Spirit impelled him or compelled him to go into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. Mark is moving close, very, very rapidly through this account. Why? He wants to prove that Jesus doesn't just have authority to, to be the king by the Father, but he actually proves to you that he has authority over Satan. And remember I talked to you a little bit about the fact that Jesus is on the throne and Satan is the, the Lord of this world for now, but he doesn't have ultimate power. Jesus just crushes him. There's not even, you know how in, in, you play, I don't know if, I, I never played video games for a long, long time, but you know when you have, uh, when you play video games, there's a little bit, and you play fighting guy, maybe, you know, and it was the old, old video games where you were playing uh, let's say some fighting, and, and the guy kicked you and your, your, your uh, uh, stamina and energy goes like, and then you have to do something and he goes back, 
This is not what's going on, guys. It's not like Jesus loses a little bit, and then it's a fight, and he goes back, and like, oh, man, uh, Satan has a little bit on him. And one day Jesus is in control. The next day he's having a bad day. Uh, you know, we need to pray more, far, harder. This is not what's going on. If you read, for example, Matthew 4, Luke 4, you'll see Jesus is knocking down Satan like nobody's business. Even though he was human, 100% human, Jesus doesn't, is not messed up by Satan. Doesn't have like half, two and a half temptations, one and a half a little bit. I don't know about it. By the way, there are like three temptations. And every time, do you know how Jesus responds to Satan's temptations? It is written. Because he is the word of God and he knows the word of God. He is the word of God. He knows the word of God. That's a good example for us. How do you, how do you withstand temptation by this? But it's interesting. Here's a question I didn't ask you. Who is the one sent, who sends Jesus into the wilderness? Did you pay attention to that text? What? The Holy Spirit? So what are you telling me? That once I become a Christian, not everything is rosy and nice? Everything is going to be just flowery and go out and wow, how nice is Christian walk. We're going to wait for Jesus. That's how come, kind of, some people present it. Like, man, you want, you want peace in your life? You want joy? You want meaning? You want purpose? You want blessing? Come to Jesus. That's actually not the portrayal of the scriptures. Yes, you will have deeper joy, deeper peace. But that will come also with deeper problems, more afflictions, more, uh, more attacks from the evil one. Why? Because it's a warfare out there. We're not in a uh, kind of a park, park walk. We're going out and we're like, okay, well, here's, some, here's the Satan, here's God, and we're kind of in the middle. And boop, a little bit I'll take this walk today, and a little bit I go on that walk today. Oh, and stay away from that, guys. Those guys are a little bit radical. Oh. Here I like a bit of the world, but not too much because I don't want to go so much under the bridge. So we're thinking like, hey, we're going like in, the, in tennis, you know, when there are two people playing and you're in the middle. You're like, man, I don't really cheer for that guy and this for that. I, I like him sometimes. He gets a little bit nasty sometimes. Hey, I'll go back both ways. This is not how Christianity works. And this is not how the world works. There's just two kingdoms out there. And God says through his son that he's in charge of both. In a sense, he has power over both, even though Satan's kingdom right now reigns on this earth. And I want to, to remind you of this truth. Why does the Spirit send Jesus in the, the wilderness? He wants to make a point. You see, God doesn't tempt anyone. I hope you know that. In James 1, it says, does, God doesn't tempt anyone. So in some other translation, it says, Jesus was, was sent by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted. And then it says, Satan came to him. Now God... The same word is actually used, the word that is used there is used in other places as a testing or examination, to be examined. And the word in Greek actually talks about the stretching. You're stretching an object to see how far it goes and to see the quality of it. And someone pointed this out. He says, God uses trials or testing to, to bring out the, the best in us. Satan uses the same times as temptations to bring out the worst of us. God uses trials and testing in your life, takes you to different situations, because he, he could take you somewhere else, couldn't he? He's, he's sovereign. He's omnipotent, meaning he can do all things. He can stop you from going in certain places and times. But at times he lets you go in those places. Why? To test you, 
Now, he's not there sitting at the door like, I wonder what you're going to be doing. No, because he gives you his spirit. And he says, I want to show you that I'm there with you. Now, Satan uses the same situation for something evil. He wants to take out the, the, the worst of you. But with Jesus, we know that all the best came out here. And that's what God wants to do with you. I love this text because it shows the richness or the, the, the authority of Christ. And the richness of the scriptures are, are profound and deep. And I could go longer a little bit, but I want to point out a few things as we close this time together. Jesus comes in as a king with the authority of the king. He goes on here, by the way, in this passage in, in John 14, in Mark 1, 14. After John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And this is where I want to end. Jesus says to you as the king who has the authority over all things, come to me, believe in me and repent. Repent of your sins and trust that your sins are actually forgiven. Believe in me. When I say it's forgiven, it's forgiven. Have you ever encountered maybe even in your life, I cannot forgive myself, people? Maybe even yourself, you're here tonight and say, man, I want to come to God, but you don't know what I've done, Andre. And I'm here to tell you, there's no sin, there's no valley, there's no mountain that God cannot save you from. He will always receive you with his open arms. He says, come to me and I'll, I'll forgive you. Repentance means to have this desire, deep desire in you to not only be regretting your sin, but actually feeling sorry, remorse, deep regret for your sin. Crying out, seeing yourself as God sees you as a sinner. And, and to see God for who He is. He's a just God. Don't play games with God. God is a just God. When you see yourself like that, and, and you realize, man, I, do, I shouldn't be here. I, I, I don't want to be here. I want to get out of this sin. I don't want to be an adulterous at heart. I don't want to keep being, being uh, bound by the sin of pornography or other sins. I feel like they're, they're putting me down all the time. And Jesus says, I understand. And yes, I condemn this sin. But there is forgiveness for you. Come to me. And, and next moment you go to God and, and you confess your sin. Lord, I am so sorry. I am sorry. Please forgive me. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, 1 John 1, 9. If you say you don't have sin, you're a liar. But here's the good news. If you confess your sin, He's righteous and just to forgive you and cleanse you. And I love what Psalm 103 says about God's forgiveness. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far He, he takes away his, your sins from His presence. Now how, what is the, the northern uh, the northest point in, on, on earth? North, what is the southest point? What is the eastest point in this earth? There's nothing, huh? Yeah, don't, don't say eastern United States because there's not, there's not eastern, the most eastern point. God uses for purpose, by, on purpose, that illustration through His Holy Spirit. Why? It's not that God doesn't know. Of course He knows your sins. If He chooses to remember, He can but he, the Bible says he chooses not to remember. God is a gracious God. He wants to forgive you. 
He wants to give you a new life. And the Bible says, repent and then believe in me. Believe that actually God can save you. Believe that God can broke and break those bondage of sin. Who are you today here? Are you someone that you're still in bondage of sin? Or are you a subject to Christ, the true king? You see, in the presentation of the gospel, I find in the last few years, and I've been convicted by this, I feel like we're presenting the gospel only from the perspective of, oh, Jesus, God loves you. Jesus came and uh, uh, he wants you to live a nice life. You know, ask forgiveness for your sins and come to Jesus. You know what I'm missing out of this? Mark 1, the kingship of Jesus. Have you heard this expression? Do you want to make Jesus the Lord of your life, the Lord and Savior of your life? Have you heard that? You cannot make Jesus the Lord of your life. He's the Lord whether you recognize him or not. He's on the throne at the right hand of the Father. The question is, do you recognize him as such? And if you don't, Philippians 2, one day you're going to have to bow your knee to him. Jesus is not this petty guy standing at the door, kind of knocking at the window and saying, anyone here? Anyone? Anyone? Revelation 19, he's on the throne. He's going to come on a white horse. Now, even when he invites you in, he doesn't come with a bulldozer with his boots on. But man, he's the king. He's the king. You guys, we need to be subject to the king. We do the right things, not because someone sees us, not because Jesus is a lovey-dovey kind of God, but because it's the right thing in front of the king. That's what the, the Old Testament people missed all throughout. That's what we miss today. We are not fearful of God as the king. Now, I'm not talking here of paralyzing fear. I'm talking about the reverential fear. You know what's the beginning of the wisdom in the book of Proverbs? What? The fear of the Lord. Do you fear Jesus? Like that? And you think that Jesus is just this lovey-dovey guy. Look at, again, in Revelation chapter 1. When John sees his beloved disciple, the Bible says he just falls down to his knees. Revelation 19, Jesus comes in verse 11 forward. He comes on a white horse. Everything is blazing fire. He sees through you. He sees in your heart. And he says, I came to war. And he says, everything is bloody on him. And everyone says, oh, that's the blood from the cross. No, actually, what he says next, the quotations are from Isaiah 61 and 63, where it talks about the last battle and the blood on his, on his uh, robe is the blood that came from the battle for all the ones who made war against him. Psalm 2, the Bible says, the nations rage against God, and God looks from heaven and laughs at him. And he says at the end, he says, but you submit to the, to the king, you submit to his son, and kiss the son. When you do live your life like that, you're going to be blessed. And more than anything, you're going to be subject to the true one king. And even though you were, maybe suffering will come over you, struggles will come over you, you know, man, I'm subjected to the king. And God always, he doesn't just like the fact that I'm actually obedient to him. But the Bible says he works all things in my life, even the bad ones, for a greater good. For the good of the ones who love him. Do you want to submit to him tonight? Do you want to see Jesus as the king? He has the power to forgive sins. He has the power to change your life. He has the power to give you his Holy Spirit. And the beautiful thing about the Holy Spirit is that you're going to have a power inside of you that all of a sudden, not just wants to do the will of God, but helps you to do the will of God. Will you be perfect? No, no, no. 
You're going to only struggle with sin, by the way. That's the process of sanctification. You're justified in front of God, but then you're going to go on a process of holy sweat, I call it. We're going to have to put off and put on Christ. It's going to be a daily process. But you know what? It's a, it's a process that you'll feel like, man, I see results. And it's going to take a lifetime until we see Jesus. Until glorification happens. But where is your direction? Are you directing yourself, or is your life directed to Jesus? Are you submitting yourself to him? Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that as we talked about the subject of Christ as being the king, I pray that you remind us that he is on the throne, that he is the king of kings and the lords of lords. And I pray that we will submit ourselves to him because it's what you ask us, us to do, but also because it's good. It's because you're going to forgive our sins and it's because you're going to not only cleanse us from our past and, and give us forgiveness, but Lord, you said you're going to put your spirit in us. The spirit will help us to fight sin. The spirit will, that will help us to, to produce true joy, true kindness, true love, and the rest of the fruit of the spirit. And Lord, we cannot create those things. And some of us might be convicted of, of the lack of them. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to cling to you, to come to you knowing that you're a gracious God who gives good gifts to his children when we ask for that. Lord, I pray for everyone here in this room that they will give their lives to you. Lord, before we go anywhere else to share the gospel with anyone, I pray that we would just bask in the beauty of the gospel of the fact that you send your King, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life that we cannot live, to die the death that we deserve, to resurrect it, to prove that He is on the throne and He is ultimately in control over death. And then to ascend to heaven, to be at the right hand of the Father where He advocates for us as a good counselor. Help us to trust in you, Jesus. Amen.